the mind by nature is radiant and pure, the Buddha said. It is shining. It is because of visiting forces known as torments, kalesas, or defilements that we suffer. It is because of visiting forces known as the torments that we suffer. So when we reflect back over the day and recall some of our mental states, whether it's impatience or frustration or disappointment or anger or irritation, despair, and any of the others, the Buddha is saying it is because a force had visited the mind that it caused us that distress. It's not inherent in who we are, it's not a necessity necessarily, but it visits the mind due to causes and conditions. So when we hear this, we should inquire, okay, if, if these are visiting forces to the mind, how do I, how do I understand them? How do I uh, discover them? How do I work with them? What's the opportunities in practice in dealing with them? Because Sayadaw Utejaniya says, it is not you who removes these torments. Wisdom does the job. It's not that we have to somehow muscle them out of the mind but rather as mindfulness observes them and understanding about them grows, it is this wisdom that will remove them from the mind. So how should we view these torments? What is the right view of torments? Now remember that right view means how should we view these torments in a way that leads to the less, less suffering or the end of suffering. It's clear that they cause suffering. Well, if we understand that these visitors to the mind appear in the form of thoughts, moods, emotions, mental states, beliefs, assumptions but they're the habitual reactive states of mind to stimulation, thoughts, that for the most part we are initially unaware of. We don't see it happening. Often rooted in some form of attachment or aversion but always rooted in delusion. They are fueled by restlessness, and restlessness of mind is the wandering mind, the mind that is thinking on automatic pilot, the mind that is thinking without being observed, the mind that is just ruminating for, for no particular purpose, often is marinating in these unwholesome states of mind. Now when I say that these mental states, these tormented behaviors, thoughts, beliefs, assumptions are rooted in or accompanied by ignorance or delusion, I want to distinguish two kinds. Earlier in the retreat I spoke about the experience of that we've all, that we're all familiar with of the mind wandering away onto a train of thought. We don't know when it leaves. We don't know where it's going. We don't know how long it's going to be. And while it's happening, we don't know anything. We don't know what we're thinking. We don't know what we're thinking about. We don't. We don't know if we like what we're thinking about or not. 
We don't know if we're upset about it. or We don't know our age, gender, posture, location. We don't know the time of day. We don't know anything. Right? That's ignorance. That kind of ignorance is overcome or is dealt with with mindfulness. Mindfulness brings, remembers to recognize what's going on. Without mindfulness, we're lost in that kind of ignorance. But there's another kind of delusion. We could say that ignorance obscures the object. We don't, we don't see the object. We don't see this happening. But there's another kind that I want to call delusion, just to distinguish. Delusion is when there's some amount of awareness and we see what the object is. We see its thoughts or sense objects of sight, sound, etc. We see it, so there's some degree of mindfulness, but we misunderstand it. The nature of the object is obscured to us. So that we assign value or meaning or purpose to this object or experience that is not inherent in it. For example, when when the mind is uh, visited by some form of attachment, or craving, or indulgence, or elation, or any of those kinds of indulgence. <coughs> it is as if a filter appears in the mind which causes us to see only the pleasant characteristics of what we're looking at, or what we're experiencing. This is most obvious when we fall in love. You look at somebody, you fall in love, and you go, perfect. Wow, where have you been all my life? <laughs> hey, you're great. Okay, and of course, there may be some real meta there, but there's a lot of lust and attachment and desire. And, and for a while, that person looks like a-okay. Okay? And then, you know, our mind changes. You know, the different phase of the moon enters the sky, and our mind changes, and, uh, you know, some aversion enters our mind. Same person. Our mind. We look at that person, we say, because aversion causes us to see only the unpleasant characteristic of what we're looking at. So we look at the same person, we say... What happened to you? You changed. Well, of course they changed. But what really changed is our mind. Now it's flooded, or now it's being visited by aversion, and all we can find is something to criticize about them. That's delusion. It's like we see the person, but we misunderstand them. We assign value, meaning, purpose, or no value, no meaning, and no purpose depending on this deluded state of mind. So, attachment is, of course, manifest as ambition, greed, clinging, holding on, being identified with um, pride, being identified with a sense of self, um, indulgence, a sense of entitlement. These are all forms, from gross to subtle, Aversion manifests in its most, its grossest form is rage, anger, hatred. But there's there are internalized forms of aversion. Aversion being, you know, push, pushing away, not liking, pushing away, distancing, striking out at. And when we internalize that, we experience fear, depression, frustration, despair. self-pity. And then there are the subtler forms of aversion that are just niggling. Irritation, impatience, disdain, complaining, whinging, whining. Did I miss any? (laughs) Now, 
the, the challenge or the issue with these uh, visitors to the mind is that they're, they're so common. We have experienced them hundreds of thousands of times that we take them, we take them for granted. They, they, they seem like normal. This is the way life is. There's no other option. We're so familiar with them. And we have our default settings. We have our particular patterns. Some of us are definitely more the aversive types. Some are definitely more the, well, the greedy type, but they like to think of themselves as the sensuous types. <clears throat> but they're so common, and, and, and we're so familiar with them, or in, in, a, in a behavioral way, not in a mindfulness wisdom way, but in a behavioral way, that we, we take them for granted. We, we, we assume them as personality characteristics. We appropriate them as me or mine. It's not just that a moment of impatience has arisen. It's, it becomes, we kind of uh, eternalize it to, I'm always impatient. And it's just a slippery slope from I'm always impatient to identifying with it as, well, I'm an impatient person. And, you know, depending on how frequently you see this particular state of mind or you act out this state of mind, that identification can be really solid. We can, get a, we, we can really get identified with being an angry person, an irritable person, a frustrated person, or disappointment, or self-pitying person, or depressed person. And when, and when we inhabit, or when we identify with that, and it gets, it gets woven into our narrative, the narrative of myself, it's really, tough to, it's really tough to arrest it and uproot it. Because we just see it over and over again. We've, we've planted that seed, we've affirmed it and confirmed it, you know, thousands of times. The great loss of these mental states is that they prevent us from living our life fully. Just take fear, for example. Fear is common. We all have we all experience fear. There's reasonable fears and there's neurotic fears or unreasonable fears. When we're afraid, we shrink. We don't engage, we don't extend, we don't expand, we don't grow into. And so we limit ourselves, we limit our sense of ourselves, we limit our opportunities because we're afraid. We can be afraid you know, physically, we can be afraid emotionally, we can be afraid intellectually, if you will, socially, and we just don't, we just don't take the opportunity to experience a lot of our human life. Fear is a great crippler, if you will, of living a full human life. Not only do they hinder living fully or obstruct us from living fully, but they, they interfere with our practice. Because to the extent that we engage in them or are visited by them in an unconscious way we're not really practicing we're not awareness mindfulness is not seeing them insight is not understanding them and you just take doubt for example doubt about practice there's lots of things to doubt about practice am I doing it right do I understand this does this teacher know what they're talking about and what is freedom anyway what is enlightenment anyway and how do I know this works? And and is this the right technique? And should I do it longer, shorter, more, less? How long should I sit? Should I go to retreat? Should this teacher, that teacher? Is it better to read books? Is it better to do metta or insight? You know, those are all questions that arise from some pool of doubt. And to the extent that we entertain them, we're fueling... It's like we invite the visitor to come in and take up residence in our mind. How are you going to practice when you have that kind of doubt? On the other hand, 
these visitors to the mine are not accidents. They're not like unnatural. It's not that they shouldn't be happening. They arise due to the law of cause and effect. And when the cause and conditions, causes and conditions of their arising are present, they will visit the mind. One of those conditions is unwise attention. Another is if we haven't heard right view. If we haven't heard that these are visitors to the mind that cause suffering and can be worked with and subdued, overcome, and eventually uprooted from the mind, then we wouldn't do anything about it. But once we hear the right view, the right view becomes a cause for, one of them, cause for working with them in a way that prevents their arising or uh, addresses them once they have arisen. So they are part of the Dharma. They're not undharmic. They're part of the Dharma. They are, upon their arising, the way things have come to be. But we should consider that though they are part of the Dharma and though they arise and visit the mind with some regularity, they are not an obstruction to practice, but rather they're an opportunity if we're willing to work with them. Because they can be known through awareness and they can be understood with insight. (coughs) It is as if when these visitors enter the mind it is as if they cast the mind in a spell. They enchant the mind. They, they assume uh, a character in the narrative of our life. And it's woven in there seamlessly. We just go from one to, to, the, to the other. And it sounds like the story of my life. I want... I didn't like... I got frustrated by... And we will this is the fabric of our, the tapestry of our life. And <clears throat> what actually happens is we get cast under a spell by the power of these states of mind. And it becomes something like a long-running hallucination. Because we just don't see things. We just don't see things as they really are. We don't see that they're a visitor to the mind, arising due to causes and conditions that cause suffering. We think, this is me. They entangle the mind, of course, in all kinds of suffering and all kinds of scheming and strategizing to be free of them. Mindful awareness is as a searchlight casting for faults in the clouds of these delusions. They're all accompanied by delusion. A shroud comes down over the, over the mind and we're watching a hallucination on the inside screen of our mind. It's mindfulness that shines a light on them, looking for faults in the clouds of delusion. These torments, these um, visitors to the mind, manifest in three grades. The grossest forms of them is when we act them out transgressively. When we don't see them, we don't know they're dangerous, we act them out transgressively, we harm ourselves and others. When we do that, the, the pra- or I should say, the practice the Buddha offered to address that level of acting out transgressively is the practice of sila, the first of the trainings of the Noble Eightfold Path, where we undertake the training of the precepts. 
awareness of intention before speaking and acting. And if we do that, if we're able to practice that, if we make that a commitment to try that, we'll notice the intention in the form of one of these visitors before we act out harmfully. When we do, we're, we're, do, we're doing a lot for creating or maintaining harmony in our personal relationships. We're not speaking, we're not acting in a way that's going to cause harm. And just that amount of relief from suffering, the suffering of unintentional harm in personal, interpersonal relationships, would be a huge benefit to all of us. But even though we may be careful in what we say and do, the mind can still be obsessed with thinking about, scheming, strategizing, and wanting to act out, but commitment to the precepts is keeping us from doing that. And so, as I mentioned earlier, the Buddha offered a second training, which is the training in mindfulness, or the development of samadhi, or seclusion of mind. Samadhi, meaning seclusion of mind, is really the mind that is secluded from these visitors. So, we can do that by practicing uh, any kind of meditation that keeps our mind occupied, or preoccupied, with something else. So you can chant a mantra and you can visualize some visualization or you can practice loving kindness or any of the practices where you just send your mind to an object over and over again. That kind of mindfulness keeps out, gives no room for the visitors to enter the mind. When we're able to do that to some degree and that happens in Vipassana by the continuity of mindfulness, even though it's on changing objects, keeps out the torments. When we're able to do that, of course, the mind is not visited by these torments. And that seclusion is felt as calmness, tranquility, a sense of ease, really, in the mind. But... Let me just say that a lot of practice takes place right here. We see the torments of the mind. We're practicing, but there isn't the wisdom to uproot them, to remove them from the mind. So for that, the Buddha offered a third training, which is a training in wisdom, (coughs) development of wisdom, insight practice, Because there are, as I mentioned, these roots deep in the mind, these seeds in the mind, the latent potential to respond or to react with one of these visitors to the mind. So when we, you know, find ourselves in an unexpected situation or, you know, they happen all the time, just things aren't going quite like we had hoped, and we get flooded with some visitor to the mind that is usually quiescent or dormant, but, you know, when conditions are ripe, we say karma ripens, and one of those visitors to the mind shows up. And so, to address the latent potential to respond or to react with one of these, we need to develop understanding. Because it's understanding that uproots the wrong views that allow us to resort to such extreme, extremely unhelpful states of mind. I'll speak more about that. So the first task of a yogi as Saito Utejaniya identified it, is right view, hearing the right view. So this talk tonight is the hearing the right view about meditation the other night and hearing the right view about these tormenting states of mind tonight. The second 
is to, the second task of a yogi is to then establish mindful awareness, wise attention. So the first step in working with these visitors to the mind is to recognize them. Now I'm talking about them. I've identified a handful of them. But it's said that there's over a thousand. <laughs> that's a lot. That's a lot of visitors. <laughs> but nevertheless, even as we hear of any of them, we know, we can begin to see and recognize, oh yeah, there's dullness and sleepiness, there's doubt, there's desire, fear, frustration, disappointment, expectation, self-pity, jealousy. Okay, let's start there. Seen any of those today? <laughs> Irritation, impatience, you know, they're, they're, they're ubiquitous, aren't they? Well, now that we've heard, these, these, are, these, are the, these are the visitors that cause us to suffer. And we have the information. Even though we have the information, we know the word, we know what that means, but what's extremely difficult is to recognize it in our own experience. We can be indulging in it. We can be indulging in a fantasy of revenge or desire, whatever, and not, and not recognize that this is that state of mind, that this is a visitor to the mind. Because mindfulness, or the clarity of the perception that recognizes, is not there. First, it's difficult to remember to recognize and even if we remember, it's hard to recognize, to have that clarity of perception. It's like, what, what is this state of mind? It's like asking yourself, okay, what's this state of mind? And then having a clear perception of it, not just kind of guessing. And that, that, that first step is, is difficult, in part because we're so habituated to just living with them. We just live with them like they're co-tenants in our house, in the house of our heart, in the house of our mind. Not like co-tenants, it's like they own the mortgage. So, so, when we can begin to recognize them, relying on the information I'm supplying tonight, then we can begin to, to, to feel them. We can begin to work with them. We begin to, to have a relationship with them. They're not quite as uh, in control. At least we recognize them. The second step in working with them is to relax. Because when we recognize these states of mind, we get we get anxious, we get fearful, we get upset, we get you know, we get we jump into denial, we don't want it to be happening to us, you know, our practice is not going well, I'm I'm feeling frustrated and disappointed and that's not good and and we get agitated, we get restless, we get reactive. And so the first thing we the second thing we want to do once we recognize them is just say, Whoa. Something like, well, this is the way things have come to be for now. Rather than denying it, trying to get rid of it, pushing it away, minimizing it, say, oh, it's not, it's not much. It's like those are tricks of the mind, tricks of these visitors. Ah, it's just for a short while. And besides, you're justified in being angry. There. You know, self-righteous anger, anger is bad enough. Self-righteous anger is insured. So the second step is to relax and to just acknowledge this is the way things have come to be for me, for now. Because as I mentioned earlier, as Utejaniya says, the mind is not yours. Meaning, <coughs> things come into the mind due to causes and conditions that are outside of your immediate control. If we could, if we could control our minds, we wouldn't let them think. We wouldn't let these in, because we suffer. But we can't control the mind. So what arises in the mind? Not your choice. But once it has arisen, you got to deal with it. So dealing with it is is not to struggle with. It's not to deny. It's not to avoid. But it's to recall that, oh, one of the causes 
But one of the conditions that give rise to these torments is unwise attention or lack of mindfulness. And as the young woman up back mentioned today, when she chose to turn to look at one of these tormented states of mind with with full interest and intention and you know wholesome awareness, it disappeared. Because it cannot exist in the light of awareness. It can only exist when we're only vaguely aware, just not really, you know, it, when it's kind of deceiving and deluding us. So, we begin to address the visitor with a sincere interest just to look, just to recognize, just to be with, to acknowledge, not to accept as this is the way I am, but to acknowledge this is the way things have come to be. And it's important to recall that knowledge, that this is just a visitor to the mind, it's not who you are. So with that information, we can begin to recognize their arrival on the scene, and we can begin to relax because this is just the way things have come to be, and we know that awareness, we remember, awareness shines a light on them, and they can only exist in the dark. They're like mushrooms, you know, they just kind of grow in the dark and can't stand the light. So the third step in working with them is to exercise some restraint. And I say that because these visitors to the mind arrive with a strong impulsion to act them out. They're unpleasant. And we want to act, act the, the urge is to act them out because then we, we've dissipated their, their intensity. You know, when you get angry, it's nice to just act, just dump it on somebody else. You know, you get angry and you just, you know, at this person and you just go to that person and dump it. There. That feels good. Didn't have to hold that too long. <laughs> or desire arrives in the mind and, you know, the best, the best, the best thing to do for desire is go buy what you want or eat what you want. Just satisfy the desire momentarily. We think, well, the impulsion is to do that. But actually, in either of those cases, dumping your anger or acting on your desire only strengthens the habit in the mind. So, exercising restraint is to uh, not act out. And there are several ways not to do that, or to, to do that. One is to just, you know, the 12-step, don't go there. You know, just, just don't go where you know your mind is going to get tormented and tempted and besieged by unwholesome states of mind. As, I don't know the poet, can't remember his or her name, I think it was a her, said in this well-known poem, your mind is a dangerous neighborhood. Don't go there alone. Meaning, don't go wandering around in your mind without awareness, without mindfulness, because you can run into... There's, danger, there's dangerous places in your mind, meaning these visitors. And if you're not careful, you'll, you'll get you know, kind of overtaken by them. So just don't go there. Avoid. Another is to exercise an antidote so that when you're overwhelmed with or when you're flooded with aversion of some sort, you can practice loving kindness to yourself, to the person that you're angry or irritated with. And that is a way of ooh, putting on the brakes, just kind of tamping down the, the heat of the aversion. Or you can replace your present moment's reactive object with something else. So that if you're looking at <coughs> someone or something and you're in a reactive state of mind, turn your attention to something else. Listen to some other music. Listen to music instead of, you know, visually being overstimulated in an unwholesome way. So you replace what's going on in your mind with a current sense object. 
Because a lot of these uh, torments arise in the mind even without an external stimulation. We got, we got plenty up in our storehouse here to kind of think about and get upset with. So if you, if you open your eyes and just note seeing what you're seeing, hearing what you're hearing, feeling what you're feeling, you will sustain the continuity of mindfulness but on a different object than the internal state of the torment. So these are all ways of exercising some restraint where you're not impelled to act out the tormented state of mind. Then, the fourth way, or the fourth step in working with these uh, torments is to reframe your understanding. You know, we, they, they are so habitual and we feel so identified with, with them often that we take them for granted. But they're just a visitor. They can be worked with. And so we need to understand that this experience is not necessarily an obstacle to our practice. It can be worked with. In fact, it is the very place to establish mindful awareness. We don't think of that often. We just think, oh, I'm upset, I'm tired, I'm frustrated, I don't know what to do. And we, fig- and, and we think that acting it out or figuring it out has to happen before we can actually practice well. You know? But actually these experiences are the very place for trying to establish mindful awareness, both of the state of mind and the story, the narrative that goes with it, and with the awareness of the physical sensations in the body that are conditioned by that state of mind. Because they are so deeply conditioned, we need to be patient. We really need to be patient. And, uh, you know, after the Buddha's awakening, as others came into the Sangha and ordained and wanted to practice as monks, he, they didn't have any rules for the first 20 years. They lived as a community of monks for the first 20 years without any rules. Nobody ever did anything wrong. But there was just one rule that the Buddha suggested for them. Patience. Just be patient. And that was sufficient for 20 years. Then others joined the order and and as things go, you know. But even though they are deeply conditioned, we want to be patient with their arising but we want to be equally persistent in our efforts to be aware of them. Because Utejaniya says, try to recognize that these torments are simply torments. They're not your torment. Every time you identify yourself with them or reject them, you're only increasing their strength. Every time you identify with them or own them as, oh, these are mine, this is me, it only strengthens. The wandering mind is not the problem. Your attitude that it should not be wandering, that's the problem, that aversion. The object is not really important. How you observe it or view it is. Thoughts are just thoughts. Feelings are just feelings. Yogis often make the mistake of expecting or hoping for good experience rather than being willing and trying to work with the defilements. Or the torments. So, you know, a few months ago, you got the notice from, from uh, Cloud Mountain. Oh, retreat with Steve Armstrong. Hey, I'd like to do a retreat. You know, go to, go to Cloud Mountain for a week, calm down, open up, get connected with, wow, compassion, love, wisdom. You know, really kind of chill out, let go of all that stress. Wow. Yeah, I'd like to go do a retreat. We think that way, don't we? We think that way. That'd be nice. Actually, actually what we should think is, wow, seven-day retreat, you know, good. Seven days of confronting the defilements and the torments and the 
suffering and the habits of the mind that just cause me to suffer. Yeah, that, that sounds good. <laughs> None of us ever do that. As long as you are aware of these torments, you're doing well, Sayadu Utejaniya says. Really? As long as you, you're doing well. Well, meaning, when they arise, if you're, if you're aware of them, spending time with them, learning about them, that's the way to go. That's doing well. So now we've identified them, we've recognized them, we've relaxed, we've kind of accepted or acknowledged, this is the way it is for me for now. We've exercised some restraint, we're not acting them out. We've reframed our understanding, this is the very place to establish and work with mindfulness of them. Now we have mindfulness. Awareness receives the nature of these torments. You know, I talk about being open, receptive, allowing, willing. Okay, so when these states of mind arise, feel them. Feel them. Feel into them. Allow yourself to actually feel what impatience feels like. Allow yourself to feel what doubt feels like. Or feel what anger feels like. And I mean, feel, feel it in your heart. Not just kind of, I know, I get it, I get it. I get it. It's just, and this is hard because they're all unpleasant. They're all unpleasant and they feel overwhelming when you're really open to them. They just... You know, we know them, we've experienced them, but we haven't really been mindfully aware of them. This is what, this is the next step. This is what we're, we're going to try to do with them, is open to them, to receive them. Because each of them has their own unique uh, nature, their own unique flavor, if you will, their own unique thumbprint or mind print. And we need to recognize that. We need to be able to identify and to quickly perceive, oh, this is what it is. Use the appearance of these torments as an opportunity to investigate their nature, Sayadaratejaniya says. They are natural phenomena. They are not your torment. Everyone experiences them. When there is attachment or aversion in the mind, always make that the primary object of your observation. Don't be led by greed. Take time to learn a little bit about greed. Pay attention to its characteristics. If you keep falling for greed, you will never understand its nature. So there are two ways to investigate these tormented states of mind. And I've mentioned them. But the first way is to, to open, to feel into, to acknowledge everything you can recognize about the experience of this tormented state of mind. What does it feel like in the body? What is it doing to the thoughts in the mind? How does it affect your practice? How does it affect your energy? How does it affect your sense of self? You don't have to ask yourself these questions, but as you pay attention to its how it manifests, you will understand this about them. This is the sabhava. What you're getting is the unique nature of each of these mental states. Sabhava is their unique and distinctive flavor. So, again, Sayadaw Rutejaniya says, don't try to avoid objects or experiences. Try to avoid getting entangled in the torments. So here we are, watching the relationship. You know, things happen. Pain arises in the body. Disturbances arise in the environment. Discomfort arises in the mind. Okay, these are the objects. How you relate to these objects can either be through the torments or through mindfulness and wisdom. So Tejaniya is saying, you know, try to avoid getting entangled with the torments, getting entangled with the objects through the vehicle of your torments. Because when we are able to 
in a relaxed way, open to feeling the nature of these visitors. We're just there. It's unpleasant. It does take some endurance. We have to steady our attention and just say, okay, this is really unpleasant. Let me just feel it. You won't die. You won't die of restlessness. You won't die of anger. You won't die of unfulfilled desire. You'll feel like it. You'll feel like you will. But you really won't. Something quite special happens. And it can only be realized by hanging in there, for, for, for enduring these states of mind. When you do, without any agenda to get rid of it or to fix it or figure it out, you're not, no agenda, you're just like, let it have me. You will see, you will recognize, you will realize they don't last very long. Not because you made them go away, not because you didn't like them or did anything or, it, or even thought about them or figured them out. Of their very nature, as I said, they cannot coexist with awareness. And so, while they may have a lot of, they may come on strong and really call your attention and feel overwhelming, if you have the courage and the willingness to just say, whoa, welcome, they can't stand the light of awareness. And so you will see, you will realize that they're impermanent. This is the first of the Vipassana insights. They're impermanent. Well, actually the second. The first Vipassana insight is these are really not pleasant. These are really unsatisfactory. Even though we might think desire is really satisfactory. We might be self-righteously convinced that anger is justified. We might be whatever with any of these torments. Actually, they're all unsatisfactory. You can't feel satisfied indulging in them or when they're present. They're they're agitating. They They cause a lot of restlessness in the mind. The mind just keeps moving, won't settle down, won't be still. So we see that they're unsatisfactory. Not because there's something wrong with us, but there's something wrong with them. That is their very nature. Secondly, we see, much to our relief, that they don't last very long. Thirdly, we also see that they arise due to causes and conditions outside of our control. They leave due to causes and conditions outside of our control. They aren't very substantial in the first place. They're just an ephemeral, evanescent appearance at the door of the mind. If we see them, they disappear. If we don't see them, they take up residence. This is the anatta characteristic. They have no inherent existence. When we see these three characteristics, in any of these three characteristics, the state of mind disappears. Not because we forced it away, not because we won the battle, it's because... Wisdom understood this is their nature. We can relax. We're not, we're not struggling with them. We're just open to learning about them. So I encourage, you know, right attitude is to be open, interested, willing. Interested to observe for no particular purpose other than knowing that you'll gather data and you'll begin to understand the nature of what's being observed. It is this understanding, Sayadavitajaniya says, that removes these torments from the mind. As long as you are aware of these torments, you're doing well. In order to understand them, you have to watch them again and again. What can you gain from just having or expecting good experiences? If you understand the nature of the torments, they will dissolve. And once you're able to handle the torments, Good experiences will naturally follow. <laughs> May it be so. <laughs> so this is our challenge. 
This is our this is our work. This is the whole nature of the path, actually. If there weren't any of these torments, we would be at ease and peace of mind all the time. That would be the end of our job. So, so think of it this way. As long as you have as long as there are the arising of any torments, you still have work to do. Yeah, we get we get temporary reliefs, thankfully, you know. We get we get a half of a good sitting each day. You know, where there's a little bit of clarity and calmness and you know, okay, okay, whew, That's it. Now back to work. <laughs> Always remember, Sadhuatajanya says, that it's not you who removes these torments. Wisdom does the job. And when you are continuously aware when you are continuously aware, wisdom unfolds naturally. Wisdom. This is the kind of wisdom. You were asking about wisdom the other day. This is the kind of wisdom that we're after. Not by thinking about it. You can think about these torments all day long. You can write books about them. In fact, there are books written about them. That doesn't free the mind. It's through insight. It's through recognizing these universal characteristics of all of these states of mind. They're unsatisfactory. They're ephemeral, evanescent, conditioned, impersonal. And they don't last anyway. But that knowledge can only be gained through direct observation, empirical experience. You can read it in the book, you can hear it in the talk. It doesn't do the job. You actually have to experience it. That's why we practice. We practice in order to be able to feel into and learn about or expose, realize these three characteristics. This is the practice of Vipassana. That's what we're doing. So thank you for listening to the Dhamma. Thank you.